Report, it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. In the middle of the 20th century, the space race captivated audiences across the country. In the Cold War era, space exploration was a way to display technological and military might. In 1957, the Soviet Union was the first to launch a man-made object into space, a basketball-sized satellite called Sputnik. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part Sputnik of jump-started fears that America was losing this race, and it galvanized a competition between the U.S. and the USSR of who could put the first man on the moon. This is Tripwire. The space race is what brought Thiokol to Woodbine. Originally founded in 1929 as a company that produced synthetic rubber and other materials, Thiokol would eventually move into the aeronautics industry. Scientists at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, discovered the company's polymers would make ideal binders for solid fuel rockets, essentially the glue to hold the rocket together. These solid fuel rockets would then be used to propel you guessed it, a space shuttle right up into the Earth's orbit and beyond. These solid rockets are what America thought it needed to win the space race, and Thiokol wanted in. Thiokol plant manager Walter L. Berry embodied the Cold War mindset. In 1964, Berry stood in front of the Jacksonville Jaycees at the Grand George Washington Hotel and said, Throughout the ages, the nation with superior weapons and exploring minds has controlled the world. It is mandatory that we expend every effort to stay ahead of every possible antagonist. These are the hard, cold facts of survival. Thiokol was vying hard for that rocket booster contract, and Barry appealed to officials and community members in the name of American prowess. But to win the contract, Thiokol first needed to build, then test out the product. The company saw Woodbine as the ideal place to build their rocket booster plant. There were tons of land, acres of land, for the expansive factory that was aiming to construct, at that time, the most powerful rocket booster the world had ever seen. Woodbine had stretches of rural land and forest. Thiokol eventually ID'd a 76,000-acre tract on Horsepen Bluff, a largely untouched expanse of brush and trees home to wild animals, waterfowl, and two former plantations, where as much as 200 enslaved people toiled in the 1800s. Here, there would be enough buffer for the roaring engines that would eventually be manufactured. River channels also snaked along the land and flowed out into the Atlantic Ocean. This was ideal because the enormous rocket boosters could only be transported by barge. The barge would then float down south on the intracoastal waterway to Cape Canaveral in Florida, the home of the Kennedy Space Center, where the shuttle would eventually take off. And there was another major reason, according to Walter L. Berry. For the past 50 years, Woodbine hasn't seen major damage from a hurricane. That, and the fact that there was ample labor supply, good soil, and plenty of suppliers in Jacksonville, Florida, that were vying for a piece of the business. Thus, excitement ran through communities up and down the Georgia-Florida coast. Jobs were being created. Plant officials said as much as 8,000 workers might be needed at the full build-out. For Woodbine residents, whose only major industry at the time was the Gilman paper plant, this signified growth. It signified economic progress. 
and it put the small town on the nation's radar. The conditions were near perfect, but Thiokol wasn't the only contender for this contract. The company had competition from two other firms, one in Miami and another in California. Thiokol not only had to successfully test launch a rocket, but it had to be the best. On February 27, 1965, Thiokol tested the largest rocket booster known to mankind. The 100-foot-long motor was braced downward, its nose pointed into a 12-story deep silo carved into the ground, and the exhaust nozzle faced the sky. For the 62-second test, flames shot out 1,000 feet into the air. Observers a little more than two miles away heard a prolonged, thunderous clap. Seven miles away on Jekyll Island, thousands of people watched the reddish smoke billowing out from the end of the motor. The light illuminated the surrounding marshland. One observer said it looked like a tornado had formed. That day, Woodbine made history. The solid fuel rocket that was tested packed 3.2 million pounds of thrust. It was twice the power of the previous champion, America's Saturn I. All indications are that this was a successful test. In that moment, mankind was one step closer to the moon. But the exhilaration from that day was short-lived. Camden County's hopes of becoming the gateway to space were ultimately dashed by federal budget shortfalls just months later. NASA was abandoning the solid fuel program for liquid propellant instead. Lawmakers lobbied hard for more dollars to keep the space plant open, but the writing was on the wall. Thiokol was to shut down production that year. According to archival reports from the Florida Times Union, the news hit locals hard. There are a good many local people employed at the plant, and a number of families moved in here who were transferred from other Thiokol operations. We're just hoping that something will be worked out to keep it open. Barry Gowen, a Woodbine merchant and realtor, and a member of the Camden County Industrial Commission. Thiokol moved on from the space industry for the time being. America would still be the first country to put a man on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But Thiokol and Woodbine wouldn't be the one to do it. The Vietnam War was often referred to as the first television war. Advancements in audio and video recording brought the scenes of battle to American homes. People watched film of planes flying and dropping bombs. They watched troops on patrol and even in combat, all on their TVs. And they listened to news reports filtered through the radio waves. Hovers over the jungle and in the midst of the firefight, his... By 1968, about 600 journalists from all over the world were reporting from Vietnam. U.S. soldiers deployed in droves, and by that year, more than half a million troops were stationed abroad. It became the bloodiest year on record in one of the bloodiest wars in American history. A total of 58,000 U.S. soldiers died in the decade-long war, and a third of that was in 1968. People were killed at home as well, in a growing anti-war movement that, while preached peace, was met with violence. Decades after the war, Vietnam would reveal the human toll on their country. 
two million civilians and more than a million soldiers from both the North because and South. My conscience leaves me no other choice. In the lead up to that year, civil rights leader Martin Luther I King Jr. delivered the Riverside Church speech. He denounced the Vietnam War. America will be. Now it should be incandescently clear that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. And he talked about the destruction of Vietnamese civilians and the American poor. Like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. King was saying that he couldn't fight for civil rights while supporting a war that harmed the most oppressed. But those comments turned a close ally, President Lyndon B. Johnson, away from him as well. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. A year later, another major figure would speak out against the war. Walter Cronkite, the CBS Evening News anchor, dubbed the most trusted man in America. Cronkite flew to Vietnam for a two-week fact-finding mission. After his return, he delivered his controversial report that the U.S. was nowhere close to winning the war, as the nation's officials said. It is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Despite hardcore opposition to the war, the fighting raged on throughout the next year. Weapons and artillery continued to be shipped overseas. Among the devices that the U.S. Army used was the trip flare. The trip flare, when triggered, lit up the surrounding area. It was used mainly at night so that soldiers could see enemy forces. Because a trip flare is, is a, like a sort of hand grenade-sized device. That's Eric Villard, a Vietnam War historian for the U.S. Center of Military History and a military weapons expert. And you, and you string the trip wire itself across a space, and when that wire gets, you know, jostled or someone, you know, knocks it off, that's when the wire activates. Boom! It goes up 30,000 candle power, and you can see around that point for a couple dozen meters. And so as soon as that thing goes off, whoever activated it is going to be illuminated, just caught like deer in the headlights. Trip flares were particularly important in the Vietnam War because of how the battles were fought on the ground, Eric explains. It was a war without fronts. Uh, you know, there wasn't a clear front line. In order to fight this war, the United States had to maintain hundreds of fire bases, landing zones, and other installations throughout the country. These are the places where the U.S. troops and Allied troops would go out into the field to look for and engage the communist soldiers. But in World War II and the early part of the Korean War, for example... It was a war of movement, so the front lines are constantly moving. And so a device like a trip flare is not going to be as useful because you're constantly moving back and forth, left and right. Vietnam, what you need to do is protect these fixed locations, right? And, and generally... Um, when we talk about fixed location, we're talking about a base that might be as large as, you know, several kilometers across to only 200 meters across. 
So it was a fixed place. North Vietnam soldiers and Viet Cong forces would attack mainly at night, using the environment to their advantage. So U.S. soldiers would defend their army bases with a variety of devices, mines, guards. And other type of obstacles. And, and so the trip layers were one layer in this defensive system for these fire bases. And it- Millions of trip flares were used throughout the war, and a variety of types existed and were manufactured in the U.S. In 1969, Thiokol decided to move into this arena. They decided to negotiate for a U.S. Army munitions contract. That's Janie Everett again. By then, Thiokol had already been producing other types of munitions, such as mortar rounds and tear gas. They made 40 millimeters, 80, 81 millimeters. They made the CS deterrent gas. And now Thiokol had won a contract to create trip flares, a type called the Mark 49, and 754,000 of them to be exact. Now the Mark 49 was designed to, uh, to go off in a fixed position with the illumination for about a minute. So the components that go into creating this, this, this bright illumination um, would have been um, you know, fairly commonplace in, say, the American chemical industry. So in, in short, what a trip flare essentially is, is a canister uh, that, contains a, that contains layers of chemicals that by themselves are inert, but it also has a uh, percussion cap on the top of it. So when the wire is tripped, a hammer goes down and the percussion cap creates a spark, igniting the material within the flare. Where those chemicals combust, they then basically shoot upward like, like, a, like, a, like a, a missile rocket in reverse. To produce these flares, Thiokol needed more manpower, or rather, women power. The plant, which had previously only employed men, sent out job postings to the local papers, calling specifically for 55 female workers. Yeah, there is a history of, of you know, turning to women labor. I mean, really, women in the workplace really got going underway in World War I. In fact, during the First World War in 1918, Munitions factories were the largest single employer for women. You saw both women and also minorities entering the industrial workplace in big numbers. Um, of course, it continues in World War II and it, it continues in Vietnam, again, partly driven by uh, people resources, but also sometimes honestly driven by wages. And partly because there was this feeling like, you know, they had more nimble fingers and 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 could do the work better. Now, you know, that's debatable. Honestly, I think the paying them less is the more operative term. Manufacturing for war really became an economic boon for towns like Woodbine. Women in the community saw the posting and viewed it as an opportunity. This meant higher wages than their previous jobs and regular work that was closer to home. No more traveling 30 miles to Brunswick to peel and pack shrimp. No more harvesting crops on local farms or waiting for shifts as a substitute teacher. I was one of the first workers that went out there, first women that went out there. That's Phyllis Roan. Her dangly earrings swing as she recalls being a shift lead at Thiokol. It was fun for me. 
when I started working out there because I, I loved it, you know, and uh, that was really my first paying job and, you know, that was my money. If I tell somebody that day I made a dollar sixty-five an hour, they say no way, <laughs> but that's what they were paying at that time. The federal minimum wage in 1970 was $1.45 an hour, about $12.12 .12 in today's dollars. By 1971, the minimum had reached 160 due to a federal minimum wage increase approved by Congress years prior. In Camden, the only other industry at the time was the Gilman paper plant. They employed black women, but only if you were a certain shade, said Janie. But at Thiokol, they employed everyone. We were family, black, white, whatever. It wasn't no color, you know, everybody was family. We would sing out there and stuff. Every Friday, we would bring, you know, potluck, you know, stuff like that, and enjoy each other. It was a female operations. The men fed the line, and the women made the, the trip players. This is the inside of M132. Building M132 is where the women made the trip flares. Inside the Thiokol Memorial Museum in Kingsland, Georgia, Janie has a map of the building, showing the different sections where they worked. You can probably see it better in the New York Times uh, article over there, the drawing, and what was there. There's eight different stations along the assembly line, each one responsible for piecing together a different part of the trip flare. It wasn't easy work. They put me on this line. That's Sadie Davis. And these missiles were coming down this line. I had to like drill little holes in them as they come by. I couldn't catch, I let them go to the next person. But that's what I did. By the time you get started good. Sadie could hardly keep up sometimes and had to let the trip flare go to the next person. By the time you get started good, they have a fire and you got to drop everything and run. So every time I ran, I didn't go back. I decided that kind of work was not for me. So I went to school and became a nurse. <laughs> that was my code. The people were making the trip flare and running from fires every day. The workers were told that the material they were working with was C2 flammable. So they were trained to deal with flames. But actually, it was a C7 explosive. The Tripwire Podcast is a production of the Savannah Morning News. Executive producers are Anne and Pat Longstreth, Zach Dennis, and me, Nancy Guan. Music for the show was written and performed by Andrew Sovine. Learn more about his work at andrewsovine.com. Special thanks goes to Janie Everett and the Thiokol Memorial Project. Learn more about the project at thiokolmemorial.org.